Good morning, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? Thank you, uh, Mary and Bert. Excellent job as always. I like that song, and I like that you're coming home and it's used to get back in fellowship with God, the uh, prodigal son, right? And uh, so anyways, thank you very much for the tick of that song, uh, Bert and, uh, and Mary. And uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, we're rapidly coming to the end of uh, this particular book. The book of Habakkuk, remember, is only three chapters long as you... If you've been here long enough, you know. Uh, today we'll be looking at verse 13, the whole, uh, both sessions, uh, because of uh, the content. Uh, in the first session, uh, we see the, the first uh, half of the verse is discussing Jesus Christ at his second advent, delivering uh, regenerate, born-again Israel at his second advent. He's going to deliver them from uh, the tribulational armies, Antichrist, uh, the false prophet, and also Satan and his kingdom, who's been cast down to the earth during the midway point of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. And uh, so uh, that's going to be it's going to be interesting class uh, to, to uh, talk about in the first session. The second session is actually uh, describing um, the uh, Jesus Christ killing, you know, bodily killing the Antichrist at his second advent. That's the second half of the verse. It's very, it's not, I don't, I've looked around, I have tons of commentaries in a back, not that there's a lot on it, but uh, scholarly articles, and, and uh, part of the reasons why I don't think they, a lot of people don't see it is because for years, for centuries, they, because this book has really been uh, uh, ignored, really, by the church, really, in a lot of ways, um, they fail to see it, it has, uh, it's prophetic, this section of Habakkuk, verses 3 through 15, so it's probably why they don't see it, but uh, this is a description of the, the, uh, Jesus Christ basically executing the Antichrist, and uh, so that uh, should be an interesting class. So we'll be talking about the Antichrist in the second session, which is, we're actually in the middle of talking about him now uh, in our uh, Wednesday evening classes as we're going through this, the prophetic subject of the day of the Lord, which will be on for quite a while. Now, Habakkuk, we should be done with this book, looking at my schedule. If there's no uh, cancellations, interruptions of the services, we should be done uh, March 3rd, uh, Sunday, March 3rd, with Habakkuk, and which is, which is a great, uh, the, the last several verses are a fantastic finish to the book and a great, Great. We're going to have great lessons with regards to how uh, this impacts uh, the significance to our spiritual life. Uh, and then uh, we're going to, the next book we're going to do is, uh, is going to be uh, 1 Thessalonians. And then we go back to the New Testament and we'll be starting 1 Thessalonians on uh, Sunday, March 10th. So, uh, and then after we do 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to go right into 2 Thessalonians, do them back to back. And, uh, and then we'll go back to the Old Testament, do a couple of Old Testament books when we get back there. Uh, so uh, we have a, a lot of uh, cool things to come, a lot of uh, 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 great uh, stuff that we'll be working on and uh, on Wednesday in our, uh, our Sunday classes. And also remember at the end of the month, the last Wednesday of each month, uh, we have our corporate prayer meeting. So that's going to fall on uh, March 28th, uh, fe excuse me, February 28th, February 28th, uh, it's on a Wednesday. We actually have uh, 29 days in February. So was that a leap year? So we, uh, so on the 28th, Wednesday of the 28th of this month, last Wednesday of each month, we have our corporate prayer meeting. We've been getting good uh, uh, responses to, uh, to uh, great turnouts for the, the prayer meetings, which I'm very uh, happy about. And I think that's about it for, I have for announcements. So let's, uh, get, let's get right to it. Uh, let's, I look around, you all know what to do. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, let us pray.
<clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another blessing, another day that you've given to us, another gift. And we know that your, your word teaches, the Spirit teaches in your word, that you've given us days, not weeks and months and years and what and decades. Uh, you promised us days, and, I, and obviously you want us to live each day uh, in light of our imminent death or our imminent your imminent return of your son at the rapture, Jesus Christ, your son. Father, we just thank you for all the blessings that we have in this country. Uh, here in America, we're very spoiled. We have so much prosperity and there's so much... Uh, so many distractions in this world, especially in this country, because of the prosperity and entertainment that it takes us away. Many times it's a great temptation to uh, not pay attention to our relationship with you. But we thank you for the blessings that we have in this, uh, in this nation. And I just pray you would uh, protect us in this congregation and remind us to do what your servant John taught us in 1 John 2, 15-17, to not to love the things of the world, the cosmic system of Satan, because they're passing away and uh, to, uh, to be concentrating on what your spirit says in the word to us and living the spiritual life and growing up to spiritual maturity to become like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I, I pray for our, our leaders, the military political leaders in our country and uh, with the upcoming election, I pray you would have your hand upon it. I know you do, but I pray that uh, your will be done concerning it and remind us in the church to pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not personally, whether we agree with their policies or not, and to, uh, so that we might live a tranquil and peaceful life, and because you also desire all people to be saved. So help us to remember 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. I pray, Father, that uh, you'd give our uh, leaders the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country, raise up people around them that have godly uh, viewpoint, uh, and, uh, and as you did with uh, Daniel in relation to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I just pray, Father, that uh, that would be the case with our situation here in this country. I also uh, thank you, Father, for uh, all the blessings we have related to the spiritual life, our, our, our union identification with your son, and that we're, despite the fact that we were dead in our sins and tr transgressions, enslaved to Satan and his cosmic system, you, you made us alive with your son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him at justification, and raised us up and seated us with him at your right hand. And we thank you for the fact that us Gentile believers are, in, are united with Jewish believers in the church and to compose the new humanity that's going to rule over the works of your hands uh, during the millennial reign of your son. And, and we're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent, and we were the bride of Christ. And just, Father, I just pray you would help us in this ministry to give us insight, enlightenment to the great power and love that has been directed toward us because of that union identification. And uh, that we, uh, we don't have to be uh, enslaved to sin and Satan. We don't have to be uh, in that situation where we're out of fellowship. That we can, we can confess our sins, immediately keep short accounts with you, and then appropriate by faith that union identification with your son and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan alive to you. I thank you for this uh, congregation, the people in this local assembly that you've raised up. I thank you for the leadership in our ministry, and I pray you give us as in the part of the leadership, part of this uh, church, to give us the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this congregation in a fashion that brings glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the positive volition that you've raised up in this ministry. And if you see fit, I pray at some point that you would even raise up even more because we are uh, in desperate need of positive volition uh, in, 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 uh, in this country. And uh, I just pray, Father, for that and break down the barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. I thank you for this beautiful building that you've uh, given to us to meet on a, a, a weekly basis. I thank you for the people who are 
supporting this ministry with their time, talent, and treasure and truth. And I just uh, pray for those who might be uh, suffering with uh, different ailments in this ministry, uh, physical problems, whatever's going on, uh, that I just pray you would lift that. Uh, we lift them up and I pray you would strengthen them and heal them in your timing. And, uh, and, and the purpose of your, their suffering would be brought to light to them and it would uh, bless, be a blessing to them. And today I pray you would help me as the communicator to communicate your full counsel today with regards to Habakkuk 3.13 to do so in a fashion with reverence, respect, and fa uh, power so I could minister to your people and provide them their necessary spiritual nourishment and also your people. I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work th in their lives this morning and help them to learn and understand and apply what they're being taught by the power of the Spirit. And I pray that each person would be spoken to individually and all of us in this con congregation as a corporate unit would be spoken to so that with one voice we could praise you and your Son, Jesus Christ. With in the, in the power of the Spirit for the great future that is, uh, we're going to experience during the millennial reign of your Son, Jesus Christ, and even coming back with your Son to lift the curse and to, to remove Satan and his angels and to start the kingdom. And the prayer will be finally answered, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanah. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared, and lifted its ways on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will re I'll be joyful and God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. This is a fantastic uh, conclusion to the book, Habakkuk. It's three chapters long, as you can see. And as we saw in uh, the first uh, chapter, uh, Habakkuk begins this dialogue with God. We don't see anything like it in the Old Testament. This prophet who seems to be, appears to be a musician uh, by the first and last verses of the, uh, the book. 
a Levitical priest, more than likely, who is a musician. He's writing lyrics to his song. Uh, we see that in the first chapter, he starts off by complaining to God about the apostasy in his nation, which was the southern kingdom of Judah, and this is in the 7th century BC. And this is just prior to the Babylonian invasions of the southern kingdom, which resulted in a 70-year deportation in Babylon before they returned uh, and uh, under the auspices of uh, men like Haggai and Zechariah and people like that. So we see that uh, in the first four verses, he complains to God about his people, and then God responds in verses 5 through uh, 11, as we pointed out, saying, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians, a cruel and terrible people, tyrannical people, and they're going to be used by myself to discipline your people, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we see because they were immersed in evil, because of their apostasy, God brought in another evil nation, Babylon, to discipline it. Now, there were other nations in that part of the world, uh, neighbors of the southern kingdom of Judah. They also would be used by Nebuchadnezzar to, he would destroy, God would use Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument to destroy those pagan nations that were engrossed in pagan idolatry for centuries and God waited for them to repent and they never did. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar at that time, he eventually became saved through the ministries of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were delivered by the Lord in the blazing furnaces. If you look at the response to Nebuchadnezzar of that happening, he, uh, he, it appears he was, uh, became a believer at that point, although he was not a very good believer because chapter 4, he gets disciplined by God, and then he learns his lesson, and he gets restored to power. So we see that uh, this Babylonian empire, uh, nobody had ever seen anything like it, and so uh, he was terrified that Babylon would be used by God. Was, he couldn't understand it, and he shouldn't have been in, uh, in, uh, misunderstanding this. He should have understood from the Old Testament, in particular the law, Moses' farewell address under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, Leviticus 26, as a parallel passage. He basically, got, Moses says, when you're, if the nation is unfaithful to me, they go into apostasy. When I say apostasy, they were believers, but then they go into, uh, they go do a 180 and are habitually out of fellowship with God. I'm going to discipline, I'm going to remove them from the land. And then uh, if they're, uh, if they're uh, uh, obedient to me and they're faithful, I will keep them in the land, I will bless them. And so it's either it's up to you how you want to do it. This because the Mosaic Law was a, a a covenant between God and Israel that was conditional, meaning the blessings would flow from the Mosaic Covenant if they were obedient. If they were not, they were removed from the land. So God always, despite this apostasy in Israel, He always set aside a remnant of believers. He still does today in the Church Age. Uh, with there are what we call Messianic Jews, uh, people like you know Paul, the apostles were all Jewish, right? But there are Messianic Jews. I know a few in my life, and they are the part of the faithful remnant of Israel, and they're actually part of the Church too. And so we see that uh, that uh, Habakkuk in his day and age, he Daniel. Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jeremiah, they were all contemporaries of Habakkuk, and they, along with several uh, many others, they were part of the remnant of Israel, this small group of believers who were remaining faithful to the Lord. In fact, if you look at the history of the Bible and you look at God's people, there's always a small remnant that are faithful, and the majority are usually way out of line. Very rarely do you see the whole nation respond 
uh, and to God. We saw it in the book of Habakkuk, which is actually the only recorded instance in the old in the past where that took place. And so we see that then, so Habakkuk's totally upset about this situation. I can't believe you're going to bring in uh, these people, to a pagan nation to destroy your nation, uh, our nation. And so God comes back in chapter 2 in response to Habakkuk's complaint, his second complaint, and we see that he says, I'm going to, I'm going to judge Babylon as well. So he's going to judge Babylon because Babylon is evil. But before he's done with her, he's going to use her to destroy evil. God, Remember, this is what God does with the nations right up to our present day. And he'll continue to do right up to the second advent of Christ. He'll use evil nations to destroy other evil nations. So he does judge the world. And he is upset with what the things that you and I see. And he does something about it. Okay? Now he always, he might seem to be delaying to you. As is the case with Habakkuk, but that's because he doesn't want anybody to be uh, to face his wrath. He wants all to be, uh, be, uh, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's why it seems like he's waiting forever. But no, he's not. He's waiting for people to repent. And when I say repentance in relation to an unbeliever, I'm talking about a change of mind. That's what repentance means about Jesus. Instead of rejecting him, believing him, uh, believing in him as your Lord and Savior. So then we have, uh, so Habakkuk, he's, 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 he's really happy about Habakkuk chapter 2. He's really uh, pleased about that response from God. Okay, good, Babylon's going to be dealt with. Great, I'm happy. Get to chapter 3, and he gets uh, some insight into the future. We get into chapter 3, and we get into verses 3 through 15. We have what is actually a divine warrior psalm, as we've been pointing out. That motive is seen throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament in chapter 19 and 20 manifests the fact that Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, is coming back to kill his, destroy his enemies with physical violence he will use. And that's contrary to what many people think of Jesus, even in the church, amazingly. But God is a God of wrath, and he is, his character is, transcends the character of, his, of men and angels. There's nobody like him. That's what the word holy means in relation to God. He's got transcendent character, and nobody measures up to him. And that's why his son had to become a human being and suffer the wrath of God on the cross so that we wouldn't suffer forever in the lake of fire. And that's why he had to live a life of perfect obedience that we couldn't live in order to have a relationship and a fellowship with God. So we see that the wrath of God, we can be delivered from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the divine warrior motive and the divine warrior psalm in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15, is, uh, is, is prophetic. It's speaking of a future time which is imminent. It's imminent because it's triggered by the rapture, the resurrection of the church. So if you look at this chart on the board that I've been showing in our Day of the Lord series and in this study of the, the divine warrior psalm, we see that in the 70th week of Daniel, remember the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27 that we've been studying and we're in the midst of on Wednesday evenings. It's 70 weeks in that prophecy is 490 prophetic years. And 69 of these weeks, equivalent to 483 of these prophetic years, have been fulfilled in minute detail. It began, this 70 weeks prophecy, with a treaty with, uh, by Artaxerxes Longimanus in 444 BC that's recorded in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, as we studied. That began the 70 weeks prophecy, the 490 prophetic years, which is the period in which God's discipline in the nation of Israel 
and it runs coterminous with the times of the Gentiles, and it ends uh, with the second advent of Christ. We saw that the 483rd prophetic year ended with Christ coming into Jerusalem with his, uh, to make his uh, triumphal entry, with some call it, but I like to call it the tearful, uh, 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 the tearful uh, presentation of himself as the Messiah. So here's the decree of, to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC that starts the 70th, the 70 weeks prophecy. It, the, it's uh, broken up into two sections. Seven weeks is equivalent to 49 years. It's followed by 62 weeks. It's equivalent to 434 years if you read Daniel 9.25. Then we see that's equivalent to 483 years prophetically, and that's equivalent to 69 of these weeks. So that after the, when Christ was, uh, was uh, rejected by the nation, we have in Daniel 9.26, as we've been studying, three prophetic events that have been fulfilled in history. Uh, there was, at the time, they were prophetic. We have the crucifixion of the Messiah, and we have the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself in 70 AD by the Romans. Okay? And so that passage is actually telling us that Antichrist will be a Roman because it says he's the, the, he's the ruler that comes from the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And he's the one who's talked about in Daniel 9.27. So he will be a Roman Gentile dictator. And so the church age began in 33 AD, and it's running all the way during this period between the 69th and the 70th week. We know there's a gap because Daniel 9.27, we see nothing in history that corresponds to it. Where an Antichrist, a Roman dictator, will make a treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years and then break the treaty in the middle of, the, of this uh, seven-year period. Never happened in history. Nothing had ever seen like it in the happening. Jesus Christ couldn't possibly fulfill it because when did he ever make a treaty and then break it in the Gospels? It's ridiculous. Preterists like to say that. So I'm talking about this because what's going to happen is this divine warrior psalm, what the things that we're studying in Habakkuk 3, 3 through 13, uh, 15 is prophetic of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. So the, the Antichrist, Daniel 9.27, he makes a treaty that starts the 70th week. And it can't happen until the church is removed at the rapture of the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, as we've been studying. And we'll be going back to that passage in the future in our Day of the Lord series. So the, the, the 70th week of Daniel start is a, broken out into two, three and a half year sections, 1260 days apiece. That's according to the Jewish reckoning of time in a 360 day calendar. In the middle of that week, three and a half years into it, 1260 days, 42 months, uh, times, times and a half time, as Daniel chapter 7 says, he breaks the treaty. He desecrates the temple. He sits down between the cherubim, the rebuilt Jerusalem temple, between the Ark of the Covenant and declares himself God. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The other abomination, because there's two, it's in the plural in the Hebrew, and in Daniel 9.27, is the Antichrist, the false, uh, false prophet, makes a, uh, an image of the Antichrist. Revelation 13 talks about this, and he demands the world worship it. And when Jesus says, when you see that standing, that image, he says in Matthew 24, to the Jewish people at the time, run, leave the country. And that will happen, except for a small remnant, which will fight Antichrist to the end. So that's the period we're talking about, where then in Revelation 6 to 18 describes this 70th week of Daniel, and especially the last three and a half years, which are called the Great Tribulation by the Lord in Matthew 24 with the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments of Revelation 6 to 18. It all comes to an end with a second advent of Christ. And today, in Habakkuk 3.13, that's what we'll be looking at, some of the, uh, the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ 
at his second advent. So we'll be talking a lot about the Antichrist in this study today. And I wasn't planning on it, dovetailing with uh, the day of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, I, and that's the way it goes. So you never, I always laugh at some of the things because these lessons are planned way out in advance. And I wasn't actually uh, planning on, I, recently I decided to go to the day of the Lord series. When I started Habakkuk with us, I had no idea I'd go into the day of the Lord series. Anyways, so here we have, that's, that, so we're in the, uh, we're talking about the second advent to Christ. And remember, the second advent, when I talk about it, it's different from the rapture. The rapture delivers the church from the tribulation period, the wrath to come. We know that 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12 through tells us that. So the rapture is invisible to the world. It's not known to Old Testament saints. It's a mystery. And the resurrection of the church is a mystery. The rapture is when the, re- the resurrection takes place. 1 Corinthians 15, 52-58 talks about this. The timing of the rapture is described for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and we'll be studying that book in the not-too-distant future, starting in March. And so we see that the rapture is a time where Jesus exercises his omnipotence to give the, re- the resurrection bodies to members of the church. The dead in Christ rise first, a split second later, the people alive at the time of the rapture are receiving their resurrection bodies. Now, that is invisible to the world. It delivers the church from the tribulation period. The second advent, though, will be seen by the entire world. It says in Revelation 1-7, every eye shall see him. He will orbit the earth before he descends on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. In fact, at the rapture, he never even touches the earth. In fact, John 14, 1-3, the Lord talks about the rapture for the first time. And, uh, he's, he, and he doesn't even mention anywhere that they, he touches the earth and comes back to start the kingdom. I'll take you to my father's house. That's where he'll be. So we see the second advent is where Jesus comes to deliver Israel, the nation of Israel, from Satan and the fallen angels, Antichrist, the false prophet, and the tribulation armies. And it'll be seen by everyone, and uh, it is preceded by signs. The rapture is not preceded by signs. And false teachers throughout the, especially the last hundred years, have been all over the place saying they got the date setting for the rapture. If you ever hear those people, just turn the station. Or shut them off, click the mouse, because they don't know what they're talking about. Nowhere is there a date setting for the rapture. It's imminent. And the reason why it's imminent is because God wants us on our toes. He wants us on our toes. He wants to have us to have a, a sense of urgency in our lives that he could come back at any moment. Not only could we die at any moment, we don't know the day of our death and no, neither do we know the day of the rapture. So we need to keep, uh, keep uh, our sense of urgency and alertness and staying in fellowship with God. So the second advent of the Christ is what we're talking about here when we talk about Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13 today. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13, my translation on the board says, you will certainly march out in order to deliver your people, specifically for the deliverance of your anointed one. You will certainly strike the leader from a house composed of wicked people by laying him open from head to foot. This is a fascinating passage here. So as we noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 3 through 12, Habakkuk 3 verses 3 through 19 is actually also we call a prayer, a psalm prayer. And we also noted that verses 3 through 15 is not only poetic, but it's prophetic. So we got prophetic poetry in verses 3 through 15. And also at different points in this, this prophetic poetry, the divine warrior psalm in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 15, 
There are times where the writer alludes to the mighty acts of God for the nation of Israel in the past. However, primarily, if you look at the contents of it, nothing in Old Testament history or in recent history corresponds to what is being spoken about in verses 3 to 15. But we do know a comparison of Old Testament scripture with scripture and New Testament, like the book, the book of Revelation, tells us that what's being talked about here in verses 3 through 15 is actually prophetic, speaking of the future uh, that follows immediately after the rapture, the resurrection of the church. Because as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, he says that the Holy Spirit who restrains evil in the world through us, the church who he indwells, must be removed before Antichrist can appear. Okay? So, uh, back at chapter 3, verse 13, actually contains four more poetic prophetic statements. Now, the first two describe the Lord Jesus Christ delivering uh, regenerate Jews. When I say regenerate, I mean born-again Jews, and he's going to deliver them at his second advent from Satan and the fallen angels, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and the Gentile armies who will exist on the earth during the tribulation portion of the 70th week of, uh, uh, of Daniel at his second advent. So, the tribulation portion of the 70th week is the last three and a half years. Now, we see, so they've got two, the first two describe Jesus Christ delivering Israel, born again Israel. If you look at Revelation 6 to 18, there's no mention of the church, only Israel. Go look at it. And the first five chapters, the church is everywhere. The first three chapters, they're on earth. The seven churches of Asia, Roman province of Asia, which is now known as Turkey. And chapter five, four and five, John is told to come up to heaven. So the church is in heaven because John's a member of the church. That's a picture of the rapture. And then we have uh, Jesus breaking the seven seal uh, scroll, which is the, the title deed to planet earth, which gives him the right over to, uh, to, uh, to uh, rule the earth along with his bride, the church, during his millennial reign. Okay? So 6 to 18, it's all about Israel. And it's the last seven years of Israel's discipline. They call it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, remember, he's, his name got changed by God to Israel. Jacob's the progenitor of the nation of Israel, along with Abraham and Isaac. So we have Israel, and when the rapture takes place, you've got to understand, there'll be no believers on the earth for the first time in history. Go look back at your Bible. There'll no, be no, I mean, even the days of Noah, at least you had Noah and his family were believers on the earth, floating around in that ark. But that was all, okay? But when the rapture happens... Every believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, now you're part of the church during the church age. When the rapture happens, nobody's left, no believers. How are people going to get saved? Same way we did. You can remember a lot of stuff is going to be left behind by the church. Tapes, books, recordings, everywhere. It's all over the place. And you, if you want it. And the thing is, is that the Holy Spirit, yes, he's localized in the church today, and when he's removed, he's, no long, he's not going to be localized in a body of believers like he is now. He, will, he is omnipresent, and he will help those who are Jewish and Gentile, unbelievers, to understand the gospel as they read it in their Bible, in the Bible. Because the Bibles will not all disappear too with us. The Bible will be left behind for the people, and they'll get saved. And there'll be the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7 14. How does he know which tribe they belong to? Only God knows that. Don't you try to figure it out. The Lord himself knows who belongs to what tribe, okay? And there's some things genetically, I think I'm hearing, that they can't figure it out anyways. But so you have those Jews and then many Gentiles 
will believe in Jesus at that time, despite the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. Okay? So the first two prophetic statements that are poetic here in Habakkuk 3.13 describe Jesus delivering born-again Jews from Satan, the fallen angels, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the Gentile armies who exist on the earth during the tribulation portion of the 70th week, and he'll do this at his second advent. The last two prophetic statements describe in graphic terms the Lord Jesus Christ killing the Antichrist. Okay? Now, there's nothing in the contents. If you look at, your, if you look at Habakkuk 3.13 in your uh, tr- translation, I'm going to give you several different translations. So look at Habakkuk 3.13. What I'm doing here is just calling up a bunch of translations here. So one second, should I, I wasn't going to do it initially, but I'm going to show you some stuff. All right. Okay, good. All right, so in your, we'll look at the NIV first. It says in Habakkuk 3.13, You came out to deliver your people, you save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, you stripped him from head to foot, Selah. There's nothing in history that corresponds to that. Uh, Look at the Net Bible's translation. You march out to deliver your people, to deliver your special servant. You strike the leader of the wicked nation. Who's that? You laying him open from the the lower body to the neck. Selah. Uh, Let's look at the ESV, another great translation that I also refer to at times. Uh, the ESV, and by the way, modern translations, they're fantastic. I, should, I know because I've been in the Hebrew and Greek for over 30 years, and they're amazing. That says in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the, of the wicked, laying him bare from, uh, from thigh to neck, selah. Okay? So that's uh, some of the major translations. Now listen to me. There's two interpretive issues here uh, that we need to look at. The second one we'll be looking at in the second session. The first one is uh, identifying uh, who the anointed is here, who are these people, okay? So that's what we're going to look at here in this second session. So there's nothing in Old Testament history which corresponds to these four statements. However, they do correspond, as I said earlier, in passing to the prophecies in both the Old and New Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ delivering Israel, born-again Israel, regenerate Israel from Antichrist at his second advent. Now, the first statement in Habakkuk 3.13 asserts that Jesus will certainly march out in order to deliver his people. And so, in this, uh, in this second, in this, in this, the, uh, we see in the second statement, it further explains the very first one. And it asserts that he will certainly march out for the deliverance of his anointed one, which is the now, and the word anointed is Mashiach. Okay. Now, a lot of people, when they hear this word Mashiach, they think it's the Messiah. Okay. You see the Jews, Mashiach comes. Okay. The, the Orthodox Jews. But it's used more often than not for his people, Israel, than it is of the Messiah himself. So I interpret people. Now, concerning, actually, before I go to tell you what my interpretation is, concerning this word Mashiach, a Hebrew scholar, old Palmer Robertson, he points out, he says the following. He says, contrary to what many assume, the Old Testament uses the term Messiah, which is the word Mashiach, to refer to a future deliverer in only a very few instances. Indeed, the term appears in only one other po- uh, text from the po- prophetic writings. So that's what he says, this uh, excellent uh, scholar, uh, expositor of Habakkuk. Now, I interpret this word anointed one, Mashiach, as being used in a corporate or collective sense for regenerate Jews, living at the time of Jesus Christ's second advent. 
And this interpretation of mine is supported by the immediate context in that the noun Mashiach parallels the word Ameha, which uh, appears in the first prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.13. And so if you look at your pass the passage again in the uh, NIV, it says, you came out to deliver your people. Your people is the phrase Ameha. Now that word is, uh, has, we have a pronoun, a suffix, Ata, and then Am is the word for people in the Hebrew. So your people there, as you see in my, my interpretation, my note, a slide on the board, I interpret the noun anointed Mashiach as being used in a corporate or collective sense for regenerate Jews living at the time of Jesus Christ's second advent. And I, I support that by the, supported con the immediate context where this noun Mashiach anointed parallels the word Ameha, your people, which appears in the first prophetic statement recorded in verse 13. So furthermore, as we noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 12, verses 3 through 15 are prophetic of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. Now, if the referent of this word Mashiach is the Lord Jesus Christ, then he would be said here in Habakkuk 3.13 to be delivering himself. So that doesn't make any sense. So uh, if the referent is the father, then the father would be said to be delivering his son, Jesus Christ. Of course, he doesn't need any delivering. He does it himself. Well, if you want to talk about raising him from the dead, that's another thing. But therefore, I believe that it's best to interpret the second prophetic statement as identifying regenerate Israel who are in a covenant relationship with God as the people for whom the Lord Jesus Christ will be marching out from the third heaven, from the right hand of the Father, with his bride, his church, in order to deliver. Okay? So he's delivering at the second advent the, the nation of Israel, in, partic in particular, regenerate Israel. And if you look at the rapture, he comes back to deliver the church from the wrath to come, okay, of the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So the second advent, he's coming to deliver Israel and to start the kingdom. When he comes back, he stays. The rapture, he's not doing that, okay? So we see... If you compare scripture with scripture, well, what we got here in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13, Zechariah chapter 12 and 14, as well as Revelation 19, 11 through 20, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 6, teach that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to deliver regenerate Israel at his second advent from Satan and the fallen angels, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the unregenerate Gentile armies of the tribulation period, and he'll do this all at his second advent. So we're going to spend the rest of the, the section, the first session here today in Zechariah and possibly Revelation if we get time. So go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. Because these two chapters in Zechariah are talking about when Christ comes back to start the kingdom to deliver Israel from her, her, her enemies. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. Now, you know, you talk about all those people that he's going to deliver Jesus is going to deliver at, uh, Israel from at the second advent. You got Satan, the fallen angels. You got Antichrist, the false prophet. You got the tribulation armies. Why is this? Because this is the devil's world. Satan is the god of this world. And this is why he, he wages war not only against the church, who really is his active enemy, by the way. Because the Israel over there today, unless they're Messianic Jews, born-again Jews, are no threat to Antichrist. Elect angel Michael, he's in his, in his legions, are seeing protecting Israel. And, uh, but uh, at, the church is the active enemy right now that Satan is concerned about. You. Okay? Me. 
and others like us around this country and this world that are believers. We're the big threat. And the, we're the, the big threat, are the, the legitimate big threat. Everybody's a potential threat in the church for Satan and his kingdom, but the, the ones that are actually active threats are those who are positive volition of the word of God. When I say positive volition, you don't just hear it. You, you, you perceive, metabolize, and apply the word of God. You learn, in other words, you learn, you have faith in what it says, and you obey the word of God, and that's your application. So if we're that way, okay, and I look around me, and that seems to be the case, the praise God, well, keep it that way. And uh, because we're the, the best hope for this country and in and, 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 and this world, really, and never underestimate your impact. So we see here, but Israel, she's surrounded because the Messiah, okay, he is going to, Satan knows his Bible. He knows he's going to reign over uh, Jerusalem for a thousand years. He knows what it says. and He's trying to prevent that. And you say, I, he's crazy. How is he going to prevent it? Well, even you're an arrogant, the, 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 the poster boy for arrogance. Okay, I don't know a better way to say it. Uh, that's what they do. I'm going to fight him anyways, because I can. I'm given the opportunity, so I'm going to make, make it as difficult as I can for him, and I still think I can be, beat him. I, you know, that's, that's arrogance, okay? So we, this is why he's, he's trying to destroy Israel, trying to destroy the church best he can, and then he's trying to prevent the kingdom from being on earth with Israel as the head of the nations, and it's Messiah, King, ruling over it with his bride, the church. And then there'll be Old Testament saints with us in resurrection bodies. And then you have tribulation of martyrs in resurrection bodies. And the people who, who are believers that survived the events of the tribulation period in the second advent, they have the fun job of repopulating the earth. They have to have, get, they get married, they have sex, they have 50 million kids, and they repopulate the earth who end up being a bunch of knuckleheads anyways, and they rebel against God when, he comes, uh, when Satan comes out, out of prison after a thousand years. We're going to learn that in the Day of the Lord series as well. So look at Zechariah 12, verse 1. An oracle. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. He says, who stretches out the heavens. So he's the creator. Who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the spirit of man within him. Declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. During the, this, the, the, remember, it's, it's not just one 24-hour period or one pitch battle that this is going to be case, the case. The Armageddon campaign, it's a war. It's a campaign. It's not a pitch battle like Waterloo. The Bible makes it clear, okay? Revelation 16 is a word that talks about it. It's a campaign. So he says on that day, and you could say it's not a 24-hour period. It's talking about, it's talking about a duration of time. The word day, it has, it, 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 the context will determine what he's, what, if he's talking about a 24-hour period or he's talking about a duration of time that's indefinite, okay? So on that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her during the last three and a half years of the 70th week, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. And I've said this many times in the past, and I, when I first heard it, I thought it was, wow, that's fantastic. But in, in, in we know from the Northwoods documents, the, the United States released, that the, 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 the plan for general war, nuclear weapons, the nuclear war, or the World War III, or whatever you want to have it, the Joint Chiefs in the 50s and the 60s under Johnson, Kennedy, and Eisenhower, uh, they game-planned for the final, battle, the final war to take place starting over Israel. And in 67, it almost happened with the Six-Day War. But they had to make negotiations, the Russians and the, China, uh, Russians and the Americans and the Israelis, and they gave them the Temple Mount. The Jews did. That's why you can't go up in the Temple Mount and pray as a Jew, because the Dome of the Rock is there. That was, the, that was so to protect 
to keep from a, a nuclear war from happening. We're that close. So if then it says on verse, uh, verse uh, 4, it says, On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its riot with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will bind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples. But Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Judah's, Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. Okay? Because Jesus Christ is the line of Judah. Okay? On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, and like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So, this period of time... On that day, you can say during this period of time, because what he's talking about in these verses is going to be taking place with the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments of Revelation 6 to 18. And the last of this, these judgments culminates in the second advent of Christ. This is where God's making war against the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ's wrath is being waged against, wrath being poured out on a Christ rejecting world. Read Psalm 2, it talks about the same thing. So then it says in verse 10. And now we're going to start talking about the day, the last day, the second advent of Christ, the literal fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Israel, the Jews have a, a, day, a feast called the Day of Atonement. There's seven great feasts of Israel. Remember, Jesus is the Passover, the fulfillment of the Passover, 1, Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And unleavened bread corresponds to it. Okay? You have the Feast of Trumpets. You have the Feast of First Fruits. And Jesus, Jesus, you know, the church is the feast, the, uh, the first, the first roots is Jesus' resurrection. And we, we're benefiting, we're going to be raised for the dead after, uh, uh, the next in order of resurrection. We are, the church. So we have the feast of uh, Pentecost, okay? We have all these feasts. Well, the Day of Atonement is going to be literally fulfilled. It's the national regeneration of Israel. In other words, it's a national repentance. It's a change of mind about Jesus. Finally, that whole nation, not just a small remnant of the nation, as it's been through history. The whole nation is going to go help us. They, got, they bet on the wrong horse with the Antichrist. He fakes them out. He pretends that he's going to be their chief benefactor like the United States is, and he betrays them. Helps them build the temple, more than likely. Then says he's God, and they go, oh my goodness, this is, this is the devil's man himself. This is the Antichrist. What did we do? So finally, when all hope is lost, when all hope seems to be gone, they pour out their hearts to him, and they, the one that their forefathers crucified, who they nailed to a cross, who they said, may his blood be on our heads and our children, they will turn and come back to him en masse and believe in him. National regeneration of Israel. That is the finishing off touches of the dry bones passage in Ezekiel 37. If we're the rapture generation, then those Jews sitting over there in Israel around the world, they're just dry bones right now, but there's no life in them. They don't have eternal life. One day that's going to be the case. Okay? So, here we have on verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Who in Jewish history have the Jewish people pierced? 
and he's going to come back and deliver the ones that, who pierced him. There's only one. Ask that to a Jew sometime. What are they going to say? They can't say anything. They're going to say, oh, that's the nation of Israel, figuratively, you know. And it doesn't look like that's like a, that's this personal pronoun. I don't, I don't see any uh, thing like that in the context. Look at verse 11. On that day, the weeping of Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadan Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of Dada, and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan, and their wives, and the clan of the house of Levi, and their wives, and the clan of Shemai, and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Now, one more passage, and we'll close. Look at Zechariah 14.1. Zechariah 14.1, we'll close. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against them. We heard that earlier, right? It's important. That's why he keeps repeating it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked when Antichrist betrays them and breaks the treaty. And the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. They'll stay till the second advent and fight it out. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Don't miss how he's fighting. He's bodily fighting at the second advent, but during the last three and a half years with the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments, he's just telling the elect angels, okay, seven seal trumpet and bold, seven seal, the uh, seven seal trumpet bold judgments, let's administer it. He gives the orders to the elect angels to, to, uh, to administer those judgments. That's how he's waging war against them. Then he bodily comes and does it himself. Let me add him. Okay? That's why his butt will be on his garments, as Isaiah 63, 1-3. On that day, his, now we know this is the, the second advent of Christ because he's talking about his feet touching the Mount of Olives. So it's, that has to be on a particular day he's talking about now. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended, by the way, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And this is a result of an earthquake that's a result of the last a bold judgment. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that, holy ones... Now, an Old Testament person, when he's reading this, knows nothing about the church. But we know, because we're in the church age, okay? And he's saying this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what is the Spirit saying when he says holy ones? Well, Zechariah is thinking of just the elect angels and Old Testament believers, right? Well, we know it's got to include us, the church, okay? We're the holy ones and tribulational martyrs as well and resurrection bodies. On that day, there'll be no light, no cold nor frost, this is what the second advent's going to be like. You're all going to be there. You're going to be witness to it. You'll be right there. You've got a ringside seat. It'll be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. Why? Because Jesus is unique, the God-man. A day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there'll be light. How is that? We're in resurrection bodies. He is. He's in his glorified state. We saw a little picture of that in the Mount Transfiguration of Matthew 17. Whoa! Big, he, he was concealed his deity and he's letting uh, the guys uh, Peter, James, and John a little glimpse of it. Well, we're going to see it in full tilt. And the church is in a resurrection body and he got the overcomers in there decorated with their rewards 
And then you get the Old Testament saints and their rewards and resurrection bodies. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel, and Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, and Ruth, and Esther. Oh my goodness gracious. And the tribulational martyrs and their rewards decorating them and their resurrection bodies. I think we don't need any light. There's going to be the greatest light show, greater than any Taylor Swift concert. It's going to be the greatest light show of all times. Okay? So it says, It'll be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there'll be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord and his name, the only name. So, as we close, we're in the church. What does this have to do with us? Well, I hope you're not that self-absorbed, okay? Because God wants you to know things that have nothing to do with you, but there is an application and a significance to all this. What is it? Well, considering the fact we compare Scripture with Scripture and Old Testament Scripture, and we're the bride of Christ and we're coming back with him at the second advent, how must we live? We should live now and, and, and we have a, live a sense of urgency. We should, we should want to be decorated with rewards for faithful service. We want to keep short accounts with God, confess our sins immediately, do what his word says, learn God's word, be a disciple of it, don't fall in love with the things of the world. Don't fall in love with the things of the world. Don't be seduced by it. And all the things, you know, it's like McDonald's. You could, one, you could have this, that, and the other thing. And Satan's got his whole thing, a whole plethora of things you can follow and gods you can worship. Sports, entertainment. Like today, one of the greatest, most idolatrous periods in American history is about to take place today with the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not saying you're an idol worshiper if you're getting into the Super Bowl, okay? You watch the Super Bowl. As far as I'm concerned, with no Patriots and Belichick and Brady, it's not even worth watching. It's like Alabama where they don't go to the national title game, right? We're so spoiled, right? But there's people, it's a day like they treat Christmas now at Thanksgiving in this country. It's a day to drink. It's a day to do drugs. It's a day to eat too much, you know, and, and just be, you know, knuckleheads, right? And give no thought to the God who can give us all this thing. Now, we're supposed to live our lives in light of the imminent return of Christ in the rapture or our death, which could happen at any moment. Why? Because God's going to do these things in the future. We look back at what God did for us in the past, the justification, and he, he justified us. He declared us justified. We got his righteousness. We're in union with Christ. We're raised and seated with Christ. We're not enslaved to sin and Satan anymore. We get victory over those things through faith. And we, can, we live in light of what he did for us in the past and what he's doing for us now. The Spirit and the Son intercede for us in prayer as we go through trials and tribulations. They permanently indwell us now, and we have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, to deal with our problems in life. We don't have to get depressed and take a pill or take, uh, knock off a few scotches to deal with our lives. Okay? You know? We have the Word of God. It's our spiritual nourishment. It will get you through anything. You'll be like, Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned to be content in the things I've suffered. You know, but that's something we have to learn. We got to grow. That's the job that we're supposed to do in light of what he's done for us in the past and what he's going to do for us in the future. When we come back with our Lord to deliver the, na the world, the nation of Israel, from the devil and his cosmic system and his angels and Antichrist and the false prophet of the tribulation armies, we're coming back and we're going to go and take this planet over. In light of that, how should we live? Okay, here's the other thing. We go, the gospel, Paul said in Romans, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. 
Don't forget to pray for the Jewish people. Do not forget to pray for them. Keep them in your prayers. And get an opportunity, give them the gospel. But I tell you, you know, the Gentiles need help too. So we need to take these things and evangelize people. I've said this before. I got led to the Lord by a guy who was into prophecy. He was telling me about the rapture and these event things that we're talking about in Scripture. And uh, that's how I got led to the Lord. Unbelievers, they want to know the future, as you heard me say. Of course they do. They, they read their, they, like I did when I was a little boy. I read my horoscope religiously. And nothing in those horoscopes ever really ever came true when I was looking back at it. I didn't marry a hot babe, you know, with a lot of money. It didn't happen, okay? And I didn't get to be the next Beatles. I lost my hair and I could barely say. So we see that this is, the world is looking at horoscopes, all this stuff, okay? They're looking for the future because they don't know what's going to happen. And they're terrified. You don't have, and I don't have to be terrified. We know what's going to happen. We know the game plan, see? And so, come on, so we need to evangelize them. This is an opportunity now where the world's falling apart. It's been falling apart, but our country could be, is, is in a terrible state, state right now. This could be the year we really get an opportunity to talk to people who have no idea about Jesus. But now, when it's all on the line and it's a desperation, maybe they'll, maybe they'll give it some consideration now because they've been humbled. Okay. So we need to keep these things in mind. We need to keep these things in mind. And we look at this passage. We need to keep that in mind. This is the application. This is the significance of what we're learning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson be a bring, bring blessing to you and your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. Guide us in the application, Father, of the things that we have just learned. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.